Hello and welcome to Demystifying Genetics. My name's Matt Burgess and I am a genetic counsellor in Melbourne. And today on the podcast, I have Associate Professor Christine Barlow-Stewart, Senior Genetic Counsellor in Sydney, Australia. Chris uh, graduated with a Bachelor of Science uh, from the University of Sydney and then went on to do a PhD in plant biology um, in the late 70s. Uh, she was one of the first certified genetic counsellors in Australasia and gained her fellowship of the Human Genetic Society of Australasia in genetic counselling in 1991. And I'm really excited to have Chris on the podcast today. On this podcast, we talk about genetics education and the evidence base for genetic counselling research. Okay, and hello, Chris. Um, I'm really glad to have you um, as one of Australia's first certified genetic counsellors. I, I think it's an honour to have you on our podcast. And thank you. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to our, our conversation today. Um, but when people think of Christine Barlow Stewart, I think we think of genetics education in Australia. And I was just wondering maybe to start the conversation, if you can tell me sort of what you're interested in at the moment, what you're looking at and, and what sort of taking your, your focus in genetics education. Look, uh, genetics education underpins genetic counselling. So it's, and currently um, I'm teaching uh, training genetic counselling um, students um, in, in the master's degree. But um, you know, their, their practice and the practice of every genetic counsellor is really to be able to provide information to the patients, clients, families that they are working with in uh, a way that the, can be understood to enable these decisions to be made on an informed basis. So my my focus in genetics education has never changed really. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I believe is is integral. Um, I know that the centre um, in the last few years has moved um, has moved more to working um, with um, health pro- professionals um, as I guess the first responders in this genomic uh, age. Um, but I. I have always believed that that education needs to be concomitant with public education, but mm-hmm. I guess there's only so much that you can do at any one time. Excellent. And so you've got a cohort of um, genetic counselling students that are in their, their second year or their, their final year of the Masters of Genetic Counselling, and each one of those students is doing a, a research component for that um, degree, um, do they are they all looking at really varied things like across like lots of different areas, or is there sort of a common theme of what the students are, are studying at the moment? No, look, it, it's it's incredibly varied. Um, some have a focus on genetics education, um, with the development of one um, student is developing a booklet um, for. Um, clients with intellectual disability and their carers wow. to explain what genetic counselling is. Uh, another one is uh, looking at a brochure for um, uh, in, in uh, for con- congenital um, heart disease um, for families. Um, so you know that's 
that's certainly um, two two projects that um, I I have others who are looking at the use of genomics um, in the NICU um, and in in early childhood. Uh, we've got um, those who are interviewing um, people who are looking uh, uh, clients, families who are whose data is um, on a shared dat- database in New South Wales and whether that is um, of concern. I've got a student who's got a survey about insu- life insurance. Um, it, it, it's, I've, I've got 15 research projects <laughs> on the go at the moment they with my all, students. Yeah, they and all sound I'm fascinating. Involved, I'm involved in all of them. Oh, that's great. No, they, they all sound really, really interesting. I, I know you were the, um, the supervisor, the PhD supervisor for one of the most interesting PhD, um, studies out there, I think. And that was with, um, Dr. Jan and Caritas. Um, oh, yes, yes. I remember. Did, yes. When I yep, was working with her, or sort of when we were both working in Sydney at the same time, she was doing her PhD with you, and I just loved that she was, she was, if I'm right, she was looking at um, babies born with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. That's right. And yes. she she yes. had like this beautiful board um, up with tracking where all of her babies were up to and <laughs> who was being born, and I just thought it was so fascinating. Yes, and, and uh, so she did a mixed method study, which is uh, a lot of the, which I think is is um, the uh, most robust um, methodology you can use in, um, in in this sort of work, where it combines both qualitative data to inform quantitative data. So she did interviews with women and um, who were going through the um, PGD process, and from that, we were able to develop a very robust survey um, so that you, you can then generalise the findings much more from a survey than you, you can from um, qualitative data. But the, the qualitative data, the interview data, is always so, so rich. Mm. And, and, and certainly that's what I encourage my students to do. And, um, you know, in, in some cases, uh, like, for instance, I had a student who was interviewing um, those who've gone through um, Huntington's disease pro- programs, um, predictive testing, and um, from that we developed a um, survey that went Australia-wide. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I think you really don't know the questions to ask in a survey um, unless you've got some good grounding and um, understanding, and that's what the qualitative data gives you. Excellent, yes. And... I mean, for someone like yourself that has worked in um, clinical genetics or genetics education in the Australian setting um, for a while now, um, and also... A very long while. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling like I need to be you, careful. You, you, you are actually being very tactful, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be very, yes, very respectful there. Um but, you know, the way that you have observed how clinical genetics and genetic counselling as a profession has changed must just be amazing. And I think to, at the start, um, the effort to sort of just get clinical jobs out there would have been so important. But I think one of the trends now or one that's sort of becoming more and more obvious to me is the need for really good 
um, research, genetic counselling research to be undertaken and to be published. And I mean, I know that you're going to say yes, but, you know, is that something that you agree with or, you know, could you sort of talk to me a little bit more about that? Look, it is still very hard to get genetic counselling research published. So, for example, um, I've just submitted a paper to the Journal of Genetic Counselling, which um, has been accepted to be sent for a review. Um, And it was uh, an interview study with 21 couples who had been offered um, whole exome preconception screening. And what their views were um, about the, the, you know, whether we should implement such a program, its acceptability, the clinical utility, etc. And um, those couples um, were offered genomic screening. So Mm -hmm. we did the interviews with them before that they were decided whether they would have genomic screening or not. And we submitted um, two, two papers, one about the exome screening and the results of that, with Edwin Kirk, who's a clinical geneticist um, at the Sydney Children's Hospital at Randwick, mm-hmm. um, as the lead author. Um, and the other paper, the uh, qualitative paper, um, which, for which I was the um, senior author. And we submitted them as um, papers side by side to genetics and medicine. Um, and the molecular paper, if you like, was accepted immediately, well, you know, sensory review, but they rejected the qualitative paper oh. um, out of out of flat. So, you know, we've, we've now resubmitted it to Journal of Genetic Counseling. But, you know, it's, it is it is still, there are there are that many journals that will take the sorts of um, studies that, that we, we do and publish there, a few specialised ones. European Journal of Human Genetics does, um, Patient Education and Counselling, um, you know, Journal of Genetic Counseling, but they are just a handful. So mm. it is it isn't easy to get published in this area. But more importantly, it's incredibly difficult to get research funded in this area. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I know getting research funds is difficult per se, but it's even harder with this sort of research. Yeah, which is, it's a bit. It's a bit disappointing and I'm hoping, you know, I'm still trying to keep positive and I think that hopefully, you know, that is changing a little bit. Um, but, yeah, fingers crossed that we can sort of increase that amount of research because, you know, it's definitely interesting and it's really important that, um, you know, that sort of ends up in the well, literature. Look, I, I, the reason I think it's important is that our practice needs to be evidence-based. And we can only do that by um, looking at our at our practice um, and being very critical of our practice and learning from it. So one of my um, students is currently analysing um, audio tape sessions um, of uh, where polygenic risk results are being returned um, for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know that's that that is important because it's a whole new area of genetic counselling, and um, a, a, a study was done, um, you know, fifteen years ago. Um, similarly, when we were first starting out with um, returning results about BRCA one and two, 
Um, and, but you know, we, we we sort of you know do that now because that's that sort of standard practice. But explaining polygenic risk is a whole new era, mm. a whole new way of thinking and talking about it. So we 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 have to be prepared to um, take part in these studies as well. Be be willing to put ourselves up for analysis, and uh, and we have to be brave to actually do do that. But I think that's the only way we're going to learn. Mm. Now, um, changing topic um, slightly, I um, over the week I, I listened to another podcast that that you were in, and and one of the things you said that. Um, genomics as ending the diagnostic odyssey. And um, I found that a really interesting sort of little quote or little snippet. And I was wondering if you can sort of just comment on, I, I don't know if you remember saying that, but if you could sort of talk to me about what the diagnostic odyssey is and how you see the new genomics as sort of changing that. Sure, I, I think we have to be careful about it, it using such, perhaps hopefully I, I said for many people, the diagnostic odyssey is ending because we're, we're still, you know, there are still lots of un- unknowns. But our, our capacity to interrogate the, um, a, a person's genetic data, genetic makeup or genetic in- information is enabling us to give answers to families about what has caused the condition. And for many of these families, it has been years and years and years of not knowing what has caused the problem. And they have gone from doctor to doctor, questioning all the time, often blaming themselves for something that they might have done or didn't do during during pregnancy. And then being very concerned about having further children because not wanting to have this happen to them again. But with this increased technology that's cheaper and faster, we can get answers for many more people um, than we could before. But I think we have to be very careful about managing expectations mm-hmm. in this area because, you know, we still can't give answers to everybody. And I think, I think there is a lot of hype around it. There's been a lot of hype around genetics ever since I've been working in the field. <laughs> yes. I, I, I think there is still a lot of uncertainty and I think we have to be very careful about what we promise. Mm, yes. I remember when I finished genetic counselling studies um, a, a, about 15 years ago, um, a lot of people saying, oh, you know, you're getting into um, genetics at the right time, Matt, you know, the field, it's about to boom. And I don't think that that boom actually happened um, until, you know, just in the last two or three years. Um, but Genetics is becoming, um, you know, more and more in the mainstream media. It's in social media. It's in, um, you know, sort of um, the TV shows that we watch. And I think that this idea of managing people's expectation is is really important. Um, I think that people think that, um, you know, although genetic testing is fantastic, that, um, you know, it doesn't always answer the question that they may have, and that can come as a surprise sometimes. Yeah, because I mean, you know, intuitively, you you would think, well, if you're looking at all of it, well, I can't, 
you give us an answer. And that, you know, it's just we still, as you know, just don't even know what we're looking at sometimes. Mm. But but it's it's the linkage too of what we're seeing in front of us, the presenting symptoms, the evolving symptoms or signs in a, in a, in a person or a family. But we that is still so in, important to be able to link what we're seeing in the DNA to what we're seeing in front of us. And we can go down the wrong path in interpretation and give what we think is an answer to a family. And that's what really concerns me when we get it wrong and how what responsibility we have to contact those people that we've given an answer to and say, I'm sorry, we told you it was a pathogenic variant, but now we know that it isn't the cause of the problem mm. and it might have been something else. And I, I worry about that, that people have taken, have made the decision, they might have undertaken risk-reducing surgery, they might have terminated pregnancies on the basis of wrong information, given in good faith, but with limited understanding on our part or limited data that informed our understanding. So, mm. you know, I, I, I think we've got some hurdles still to get over. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's important that you said, you know, it was given in good faith, and it's like the the test result hasn't actually changed. It, it may just be our understanding. And, um, you know, when we find these variants of unknown significance, like, you know, when the lab says, yes, we found something, and when I'm sort of explaining to my clients at work that, yes, the lab has found something, but we don't know what it means yet, and... I think that that's a really hard thing to sort of explain to people that we're not sure what it means. You know, maybe it is the answer, but it it may not be at the same time. And we really need to just wait and and see whether this falls out as being disease-causing or not. Yes, and and so, in fact, one of the things that I um, talk to my students about is the management of uncertainty and that that is a major role that they have to um, not, of course, manage uncertainty for their, for their clients, but to help their patients and clients un- manage it for themselves. Mm. Because uncertainty is, it, it's, it's a difficult state to be in. It, we all like to be in control. And, of course, there, you know, a, a major um, um outcome of genetic counselling is increasing a person's um, perception of perceived control. And uh, if, if, if we can you know, help in giving them some sense of control, that's an important outcome. But often we're not doing that. We are leaving them with even more uncertainty. Um, and, and, and I think that's something that we need to recognise is that's, some, that's, a, that's an outcome that we, we need to manage. Mm, mm. And um, another thing um, that you sort of mentioned a little while back, but it was something that I wanted to sort of come back to, was um, the the idea that parents often have um, blame and guilt. Um, I think that it, 
it's really common when um, parents have a child where there may be something wrong with the child and it you know, it's a natural thing. It's something that we see all the time in genetics that parents are, you know, are wondering what they've done and how it was their help. And it's amazing to see that when a, a genetic diagnosis has been made, it actually alleviates or takes away that guilt and blame. Yes, indeed. And 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 people have sometimes lived with that for years and years and years. And so, you know, we've got someone who's, you know, 30 and, you know, parents who might have a a, a son or a daughter who's 30 or 40 and we're returning results to them and some might say, well, you know, what's what's the point? Because that was such a long time ago. It is still important because that parent, you know, has been living with that guilt for 30 or 40 years. And so if even at this time we can, if we can, alleviate that. And I have seen, you know, a, a, a person, a mother in her 70s, you know, whose his whole demeanour changed when we were able to say, this is the cause. Um, it occurred spontaneously. It was de novo. You know, it was nothing that you did. Mm. And I, I think that's an incredibly important um, role and, and gift that we can give to these things. Yeah, definitely. Like imagine sort of carrying that guilt and blame for yourself for 70 years. Like yes. that that's yes. huge. Yes, it is. Mm. It is. And um, so another thing that you um, I heard you say, which was something that I, I didn't know, um, I, I know that you have been involved with your work over the last few years or <laughs> many years about screening um, different communities um, in, in, in Australia and you've been involved with carrier testing um, in the Jewish populations and, like, in, in the schools in Sydney. And something I didn't realise was that there's been no child born with uh, Tay-Sachs since screening started. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought that that was an amazing, um, you know, quote or an amazing thing to, to know. Well, that's, you know, we've started in screening in the high schools in the Jewish community since 1995. And there's been no child born with Tay-Sachs to any, um, couple or that participated in the screening program. There have been, Children born with Tay-Sachs in Australia, but not to any anyone who participated in in the screening. So, um, look, and and the the Australian government has just committed twenty million dollars to um, a three year program um, for offering preconception screening um, or screening in early pregnancy to ten thousand couples in wow. Australia. Um, but and part of that, um, the reason that. It was, I think it was funded apart from the submissions that um, I was part of with um, Edwin Kirk and Martin de la Tiki and, um, and, and Nigel Lang in WA and um, several others. There was a, a couple who had a baby, um, Mackenzie, who was born and died very young with um, spinal muscular atrophy mm-hmm. or SMA. And it was their eloquency and their advocacy that they did not want this to happen to anybody else. 
that convince the government. So we we are really in um, in a new phase now that we're going to have to make sure that that program, if it is rolled out, um, is rolled out well, that all um, the benefits are assessed appropriately, but also the risks, the lim- limitations, and, you know, the, the underpinning it is choice. Mm. That you don't have to have this screening, that it is your choice not to, it is also your choice to have it, but we also have to make it equitable, that there needs to be access to this. I know that in Victoria you have Prepare and Prepare Plus, but you know, that's, that people have to pay for that. Yes. And there are many in our community who are disadvantaged and, and they can't afford it. Mm. You know, so it's, you know, cost and ability to pay should not underpin their ability to have this information. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, a, a little bit of a, a different type of question, but what do you love about genetic counselling? What do I love about genetic counselling? Um, I, I love being able to walk alongside families and clients when they are dealing with the most difficult things in their life and having to make sometimes the most difficult decisions and watching them use their own resources to make decisions that's appropriate for them. I like being able to reassure people who are concerned about their reproductive risk or their risk of developing something that it isn't so. Um, And I am constantly learning from the, the resilience that the families that I um, am working with, who who just amaze me, uh, that they can manage life with so many that you know people would be bowed under by the, the everyday demands that they are facing, and yet they are, they're so resilient. So that's what I love about genetic counselling, being exposed to that, uh, that you would not if you weren't working in this field. Mm, excellent answer. I, and I agree. I, I think that it's such an honour to be able to share, um, you know, something that's so private with, you know, individuals and couples and, um, you know, being able to work with families and, um, you know, sometimes the interaction is, is quite short and it might only be one or two sessions, but sometimes we work with families f- for years and it might not be sort of intense, you know, weekly um, appointments, but, you know, there are some families that we do see um, sort of ongoing. Um, and I think that where I feel really lucky that I've found this job that I, I really enjoy and, um, yeah, it's a good yes, I, I think it's a privilege as, as well, and I certainly tell my students, you know, that they, um, to the things that are being shared with them, and their ability to establish such rapport that they are trusted with this in information. Um, it's an honour, really, mm. and they need to be very respectful of that trust. Mm. 
So one last question for you. Um, where do you think genetic counselling is going or where do you think that it, it needs to go? Look, I think it's, it's going to be increasingly mainstream. But I, th- I think that it's still, it's going to be a niche profession for a long time because of the depth of training that is required. I know um, Melbourne are graduating 20 students a year and recently I've got a new course opening in Sydney that will also be doing that. So in 2020, there'll be 40 new graduates and 2021, another 40, etc. But that is a drop in the bucket that, you know, given the expertise that we've been talking about, that is required with the rollout of this technology. So I think that genetic counsellors um, will increasingly be working with um, health practitioners, not in the same way that they're doing now, um, in genetic services, for example. I think that's where they will go, but I think that they're going to have to work differently. Mm because it's not possible to work in the way that they're doing now with the increased demand. I think there'll be increased reliance on telehealth, uh, more on online um, counselling. It's going to change. I don't think we can keep doing, working as we are doing. Yes. That's my view. What's yours? No, I agree. Like, I think that the the need for genetic counsellors is definitely increasing. And, you know, one of the themes that I've sort of um, brought up with a lot of um, my guests on this podcast is sort of um, mainstreaming genetics. And we know that genetic testing has been ordered in, in many more sort of areas like um, – you know, genetics used to be the gatekeepers of um, ordering tests, but now it is becoming more mainstreamed. And um, and the issue that bring that brings up is sort of um, the pre-test counselling versus post-test counselling. And you know, are we able to spend the appropriate amount of time talking to people before they have the test? And I think that the way things are going is that more and more genetic tests are going to be ordered and maybe the the consenting process isn't going to be perfect, but hopefully we can play a really major role in that um, post-test counselling with families when something has been found and, um, you know, we are answering a really important question for them. So, look, I mean, we've, we've got some data um, about that so that, you know, when you know, treatment-focused genetic testing for breast cancer was, and ovarian cancer... Um, was in, introduced to to guide surgical decision making and and increasingly um, chemotherapy. Um, you know, it it just it it just wasn't wasn't possible for us to be able to provide all the pre pretest counselling. And moreover, the women we interviewed, and then again, um, we took that into a survey um, using the sort of mess methodology that I talked about before. Um, the women didn't. They women wanted their their surgeons or their oncologists, with whom they already had a relationship, mm-hmm. to talk to them about this. And and then, you know, when they wanted to discuss later um, after their surgery, if they were found to 
have inherited the pre- predisposition, so it was an inherited um, breast or a ovarian cancer, and they wanted to talk about the family things, then they could talk about it with genetic services later. But, you know, the, so we, we developed a, a brochure that the um, surgeons and the oncologists could, could use, and that has been proven to be perfectly effective in the pre-test education and counselling. But the post-test is where genetic scientists are needed. That's where their skills are needed. So we, we're going to have to use more and more genetics education, I think, in the pre-test. But it needs to be simple. Mm. It needs to be um, in the right language. We need, we need to be... Like Anna, Anna Middleton in the UK has developed all these YouTube videos, which is fabulous. You know, we, we need to use more and more of that tech technology and innovations, something like these podcasts, for example. You know, make sure that we are you know, giving the information, but it's the impact of that information or the decisions where genetic counsellors are needed. Excellent. What a great place to finish up. Um, I'd just like to say thank you very much. I've really enjoyed demystifying genetics with you, Christine Barlow-Stewart, today. Um, and yeah, I look forward to this podcast going live. Okay. Thank you for having me, Matt. Okay. Nice then to talk to you. take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So Chris and I covered a lot of topics today. And if you've got any questions or comments, um, as always, you're very welcome to get in touch. Um, I have the information, um, in a fact sheet and that is hosted on my website. So you can check that out at insightgenomica.com.au. Thank you. 